Okay, the next lecture is on boundaries. I told you before that one of the main symptoms that codependents have is that they have uh, non-existent boundary systems, damaged boundary systems, or they have a system of walls for boundaries. Now, in order for you to even begin to understand what I'm talking about, I need to talk to you about what boundaries are. So I'm going to give you a way to kind of visualize or conceive of your own boundary system. To start off with, I want to tell you about what they're supposed to do for you. They have functions. Your boundary system protects you. It protects you at all levels of your reality. It is designed to protect you in terms of your body. It's designed to protect you in terms of your thinking, in terms of your feeling reality, and in terms of your thinking. It protects that. The other thing your boundary system does for you is that it ensures that your behavior is appropriate because as you have a boundary system, you will automatically be respectful of somebody else's boundary and give them the right to have one which will keep you from offending, truly offending other people. So it's about self-protection but it's also about keeping you from being an offender. Does both. Now, as I said before, there are four components to your boundary system. There's a physical component and a sexual component. There's an emotional component and a spiritual, intellectual component. The physical, sexual compo uh, components make up what I call the external boundary. The emotional spiritual components make up the internal boundary. They work differently. The external boundary functions uh, outside your body. It is truly represented by this bell-shaped curve. Now let's try blue. The external boundary is experienced again outside your body and it travels away from you and towards you as an issue of protection. It establishes distance and touching between you and other people and again it moves out and it moves in. The internal boundary however doesn't function that way. It functions as you have it to protect you from things coming at you so it stops things. Sometimes it functions to let things in that are appropriate to let things into you and, and so that you can experience them. And it throws things out of your awareness when you need to, when you've taken in something that isn't appropriate for you to have. It allows you to throw it out of your internal environment. So the two, uh, you go, you have four components and two systems that make up an entire boundary system. And again, the external moves out and in. It is experienced outside your body. The internal moves by letting things into your body, keeping things out and throwing things out from, it, from within. It's an internal experience. It is, the internal usually is the more difficult one to set and conceive. Now, each part of your boundary system pr protects a, uh, and allows you to be appropriate in each area of your reality. And your reality, again, is made up of your body, or what you look like, 
make, made up of your thinking reality or how you give meaning to your environment. It's made up, it protects your feeling reality or your emotions that are generated by your thinking. And it protects your behavior, what you do and don't do. The external boundary both protects your body, period. The physical boundary protects the physical aspects of your body that are non-sexual. The sexual part of your boundary system protects the sexual aspects of your body. When you have a physical boundary, you will find yourself being physically appropriate with other people and able to physically protect yourself. When you have a, sexual, a good sexual boundary, you will find that you are sexually appropriate as well as being able to sexually protect yourself. Now, the emotional boundary protects your feeling reality and your behavior. And what I mean by that is it allows you to have your own feeling reality and to behave in the way you need to behave in order to be comfortable or to be in charge and protect yourself. But it also gives you an allow it also allows you to let other people have their feeling reality and their behavior reality because you know that they have the right to do that when you have an emotional boundary. The spiritual intellectual boundary protects your thinking reality. It allows you to think whatever you think and want to think. And you also, when you have it, give other people the right to do their own thinking. For example, I've been standing up here all day long giving you a lot of my thoughts. I believe what I'm telling you or I wouldn't be up here standing telling you that. And I know I have the right to think what I'm thinking, but I also know that you have the right to do your own thinking. You know, you have the right, as far as I'm concerned, to walk out of here and say, Pia does not know what she's talking about. That's all a bunch of hogwash, and I'm not listening. And you know, I would tell you that you absolutely have the right to do that. You'll, you'll face the consequences of that kind of thinking, but it's okay. <laughs> it's okay for you to do that. <laughs> It sounds funny, but that's true. <laughs> now, let me talk to you about how you set up each part of your boundary system so you get an idea of what this kind of thing is about. Now, I guess I didn't type these out for you, so I'll, I'll, um, I'll say them slowly. And I would suggest you write these down, but I can only go over them just so fast. If you don't get it, I've got them written down up here, and you guys, after all this is done, can... Uh, Take this sheet of paper and copy them down, and it is on those tapes, too. In order to set your physical boundary, you need to have this kind of statement going on within you at all times, and that's this. I have the right to determine when, where, how, and who is going to touch me and how close I am going to allow you to stand to me. That I have, what I'm saying is that I at all times have a right to determine how close somebody is going to get to me and whether they're going to touch me or not. This is my body. Nobody has the right to breathe in my face or touch me without my permission. On the other hand, as I give myself the right to do that, I also give you the right to determine whether I'm going to touch you and how close I'm going to stand to you. That each of us have the right to negotiate that. How you set the sexual boundary up is with a very similar statement, except it has to do with sexual behavior. It goes like this. Again, I have the right to determine with whom, where, when, and how I am going to be sexual. 
What that means is that nobody has the right to tell me I have to be sexual with them. Nobody has the right to tell me how I'm going to do that, when I'm going to do that, or where I'm going to do that. That is my business to determine that. I need only face the consequences of my choices. On the other hand, as I have one and I determine that for me, I also give you the right to do that. So if I'm trying to negotiate being sexual with you and you say no thank you, that's the end of it. But I know you have the right to tell me, no, I don't want to be sexual with you or I don't want to do it that way or I don't want to do it out on the decking or whatever it is that you want to do, you have the right to do that. So it allows me to be sexually appropriate, it allows me to be sexually protective. You set the emotional boundary with a more complicated statement with a couple of caveats after it. And it is the hardest one to set. It is usually the most damaged one for a codependent. And that's because as a child is abused, the very statements told to them during the act of abuse will cause the thing to go, the emotional boundary be automatically set in reverse. The emotional boundary is set with this statement. My reality is more about my history than what you are saying or doing in front of me. And again, my reality is about what I look like, how I think, how I feel, and what I do or don't do. My reality is more about me and my history than anything you are saying or doing in front of me. And vice versa, your reality, as I observe it, your reality is more about you and your history than anything I am saying or doing in front of you. See, the fact of the matter is, well, there's a couple things here. The fact of the matter is that when I notice something happening out in my environment, what, what happens to me is I observe it and it goes into my brain. My brain gives it all kinds of meaning. As a result of that meaning I give it, I generate my feeling reality. As a result of that, I go into some behavior. Now, you might be doing something out there I'm looking at and then taking it in and doing all that. Do you know that how I take it in, what meaning I give it, what feelings I generate, and what I do is more about me and my history, especially when I'm codependent, than anything about what you were doing. And it goes back to that thing Pat told me. Pia, you can take perfectly good data into your head, and by the time you finish rumbling around up there, it has nothing to do with reality. And vice versa. <laughs> that was hard. That was bad news. I wanted to blame him. You see, when a person's emotional boundary is in reverse, what you do is you blame other people for what's going on with you. Well, if you just wouldn't look at her that way, I wouldn't have to feel jealous. If you'd just come home at night when I want you to, I would feel safe or whatever it is. You blame other people for your own reality. You know, if you'd be nice to me, I'd dress better, or whatever it is. And it goes on on all four levels. You blame other people for your reality. You know, if you'd be nice to me, I wouldn't have to overeat and be huge, or whatever. You blame other people for what's going on with you, but on the other hand, as it's in reverse, you will take responsibility here for what's going on there. Feel guilty. 
about what's going on with the other person that you're observing. Like you believe you cause other people to feel something. I can't tell her that I'm upset with her behavior. I'll hurt her feelings. Only somebody with their emotional boundary in reverse could even begin to say that, let alone believe it. You don't cause anybody to feel anything. They, you say something, they're the ones that take it in, give it meaning, and whack themselves out with it. You don't have the power to ca cause anybody else to feel anything. They do that all on their own. You're not that powerful. This is the hardest kind of boundary to get straightened out. We're locked into this because as a child is abused, what happens? The parent leans over the child and says, you know, if you'd shape up, I wouldn't have to do this to you. I'm doing this because you made me do it. I'm feeling this because you caused me to feel this way. So the child learns to throw that thing in reverse. They'll do it every time. It's terrible. It's abusive. There's two caveats that go along with this emotional boundary that are extremely important to note. The first one is this. With the emotional boundary system, although I know that I am not responsible for how somebody else is responding to me, if I am in a relationship with them, I am responsible for noting the impact of my behavior on them. So. I might have done something over here and my husband over there is reacting to it. I know when my boundary is standing up well that his reaction to whatever I've done is more about him and his history than what I've said or done as long as I haven't offended him. But I am in a relationship with him. It's important to note the impact of my behavior. I may want to adjust some of that behavior because I love and care about him. And I, and, I, and I may want to change something in order for us to live more comfortably, even though I know it's more about his history. So I am responsible for noting the impact. If I have any hope of ever being in a relationship with this person, I need to note the impact. That gives me options for changing or not changing some, something. And that's, But that's all I'm responsible for. The other caveat in here is this, that if I, if one person in an exchange has offended the other by punching through their boundary system, and I'm talking about major issues of offense, if one of them in their behaving or their talking has physically, sexually, emotionally, or spiritually attacked the other person, in the same way I talked about those major issues of abuse, like somebody's walked up and punched somebody, touched them sexually against their will, screamed at them or attacked their intellectual ability, major offensive acts are going on. When that's going on, this boundary, the statement that sets this boundary does not hold. Because if one of you has offended the other by punching through their boundary system and, and have engaged in an act of offense, then the person who did the offense is accountable for the effect on the other person. In other words, you can't punch somebody and, and when they respond with a lot of anger and pain, look at them and say, that's not about you and your history, then me slapping you across the face. Because that's not the case. That is not the case. There's two caveats to this. One's about, although I won't take responsibility for what you're doing over there, I, am, I will note the impact of my behavior on you. But if I have offended you, I am accountable for the effect over there. That's a big boundary. It is the one that establishes the most intense experiences of intimacy. The spiritual boundary, the spiritual intellectual boundary is simpler. 
thank goodness. It's set with this statement, and I've talked about it before already. I have the right to think whatever I want to think. I need only face the consequences of my own thinking. See, although I know you only have to, you have to face the consequences of your own thinking, I do too. I can think whatever I want. I need only face the consequences of my own thinking. So in order to have set up your boundary system, you have to own those statements and start acting them. You know, start acting and thinking in that manner in order to create them for yourself. Now, I want to go into talking about how to begin to um, assess the condition of each part of your boundary system. And I'll run down that through them quite quickly so you can get an idea of that. And again, there's there's four different conditions. None, a wall, a damaged boundary, or you can have a boundary intact. And what you have to do is you have to assess each component of the system because each component may be in a different condition. Like you could have a non-existent physical boundary a damaged sexual boundary, an intact emotional boundary, and a wall for a spiritual boundary. It just depends on what you have. And I'll run down through those quite quickly, but I will run down through them. This is the kind of thing you have to do in order to write out that, that step one under the fifth issue of boundaries under powerlessness. In terms of your physical sexual boundary, they're kind of figured out the same way, so I'll do them both together. But I'm talking about either physical or sexual behavior. If you have a non-existent physical or sexual boundary, you won't have any way of knowing when somebody is being sexually or physically inappropriate with you. You'll have the sense that something's going on that isn't okay, but you won't know what it is. Because there's no boundary there to tell you. Just be mild, you'll just be kind of uncomfortable. You'll believe that the uncomfortableness or what's going on is about you and not about the person doing it. So you won't have a sense of anything there. And you won't be able to confront offending behavior. On the other hand, because you don't have one, you're set up to be sexually or physically offensive with other people because you don't have a sense of that there and you won't know that they have the right to physical comfort and sexual comfort and you'll be in their face all the time. You'll be doing things like standing in people's faces and refusing to move back. You'll be about touching people sexually against their will or insisting they be sexual with you. On the other hand, you won't be able to say no. Somebody walks up and says, you want to be sexual? You kind of go, why do I want to be sexual with you? But you go, okay, you know, okay, you know, it's like you cannot say no. Somebody's standing in your face and you just stand there going, I don't like, you know, something's wrong here, but I don't know what to do. If you have a wall for a physical or a sexual boundary, it will be made up of anger, fear, <coughs> anger or fear. If you have a wall of anger that you're using as that external boundary, and, and we're talking about the physical boundary, what it is is you're walking around, or if it, you know, it depends on which one it is. You're walking around in terms of physical stuff, you look real angry, and you'll notice everybody avoiding you. Nobody's approaching you, nobody's trying to hug you or get close to you. If it's for a sexual boundary, what it is is nobody's trying to negotiate anything sexual with you. You're walking around looking like, don't touch me, don't negotiate with me, I am not interested. If it's a wall of fear, with either boundary, you'll be about keeping 
physical or sexual distance from other people. You'd be hiding in the bushes, staying at home, being where nobody could possibly touch you or negotiate sexual behavior with you. You're about running away and keeping big distance from other people, but it's a wall made up of fear. If you have a damaged physical or sexual boundary, what that means is that at, uh, that you'll either be um, sexually or physically unprotected or sexually and physically uh, offensive, but have an awareness that what's going on is not okay. It's like part of the time you can protect yourself and part of the time you can't. Part of the time you can be appropriate and part of the time you can't. And it's people selective. It's like around certain people your sexual boundary fails, around certain people your physical boundary fails, or around certain people you get offensive. It's like you might have a very good and intact sexual boundary, but when it comes to negotiating a relationship with your wife, you force yourself on her, or vice versa. Get real demanding and abusive. But around other people, you never think to do that. you got to damage sexual boundary in that case, or maybe about physical behavior. It just depends on what behavior you're talking about. If you have a boundary that's intact, you will be able to protect yourself physically or sexually and, and be about being sexually and physically appropriate with others even when they don't have a fully developed boundary system. Okay, when it comes to the emotional boundary, when you don't have one, the thing is in total reverse. You blame other people for your reality and in turn take responsibility for their reality. When, it's, when there's a wall instead of um, a good emotional boundary, what that's about is when you walk around with a wall of anger for an emotional boundary, you could care less what somebody else is feeling or what they're doing. You're not noticing. She's got a wall of anger. You're walking around, trucking around. Who cares what's going on with you in terms of your feeling and what you want and what you're doing? If you've got a wall of fear, you're about, again, distancing from people. And again, it doesn't matter to you what somebody else is feeling or doing. You could care less, and you're not about telling them what's going on with you. It absolutely stops. Any kind of wall stops intimacy dead in its tracks. If you have a damaged emotional boundary, What's going on with that is that uh, around certain people the thing flies in reverse or, or depending upon how damaged it is. You know, you can have a very, very damaged system with very little there or you can have it just around one person the thing flies in reverse. So you got a fairly intact boundary with one little area that will throw it in the reverse. Like whenever you get around your husband or your wife or your boss or your mother-in-law, all reason goes out the window and you're about blaming, uh, bony fingering and taking responsibility in areas that aren't in none of your business. If you have an ba emotional boundary that's intact, you know that what's going on out there is more about them than you. What's going on with you is more about you than them, and uh, unless somebody's offended. But also when that's uh, going on, that you know when somebody's sharing their reality with you and it's about your behavior, you need to note the impact of your behavior on them. On the intellectual boundary, when you stand in life without one, that means that your thinking reality is based on whoever you're listening to at the moment. You swing from pillar to post with your thinking reality. If you have a wall of anger, or a wall of fear, you could care less what somebody else is thinking. Nothing goes in, nothing goes out. You don't share and you don't listen. When you have a damaged intellectual boundary, what happens is around certain people it fails you. It's like if a priest says it, you have to believe it. 
Or if your boss says it, you have to believe it. If your husband says it, you got to believe it. Or if a teacher says it, you got to believe it. If a therapist says it, you got to believe it. If a doctor says it, you got to believe it. So it's people specific. So around uh, this, and it can be in you know terribly damaged, but some of it there, or it could be absolutely uh, fairly intact with only one person that fails. If you have an intellectual boundary, what happens with that is you have the ability to listen assess and make a decision about whether you're going to take information out in or keep it out or watch it now that's what I want to talk about next how to establish boundaries if you guys are on overload that's real normal <laughs> Setting up your external boundary actually is fairly easy. And what I told you about that is that this boundary moves out and in, depending upon what's going on. It is actually an energy uh, experience between two people, that as you approach somebody, you can feel that external boundary. Now, I've asked Amy to come up and demonstrate this external boundary. So a friend of mine show you how to do that. Now, what I, what, what I want you to do, Amy, is kind of go stand over in that corner. The, well, about there. Yeah, you don't need to start. Now, don't do anything until I tell you to, okay? Now, what I'm going to ask her to do is show you how you can establish a boundary with someone. You do it by eye contact, and we're talking about the external boundary. Now, what I'm going to tell her to do uh, when I look back at her is to make eye contact with me and start walking towards me. And walk until she starts. Walk to me until she starts feeling uncomfortable. At the moment she starts feeling uncomfortable, and she'll know that because she won't want to look me in the face. She'll start turning away. Then she needs to start stepping back, maintaining eye contact. And when she's then comfortable, that means she can maintain eye contact. She will then have established that external boundary with me. Okay. So go ahead and do that, Amy. Right about there. Now, now stay still because I want to show some people. I'm going to move inside your boundary. Is that okay? Okay, no, but just stay right there now. What she has just told us is that her external boundary with me is about 18 inches away. And it's a bell-shaped curve. It's, it starts right here. It goes off to the side the same distance. When I get behind her, it actually is going to be a little further behind her than when I'm in front of her, unless she turns her head. I think she started to turn her head. Okay, now people will do that to maintain the boundary. In fact, most people because will actually turn when somebody gets behind them. But if they don't turn and look, they're, they're only going to feel comfortable when you move out a little bit further. Now, I'm going to do something that's offensive right now. She's given me per permission to do that. I won't hurt her, but she's just told me where her boundary is. Now, remember I told you your boundary allows you to be appropriate in terms of allowing somebody else to have one. This is an example of somebody knowing where the boundary is but not taking care, not letting her have one. If I walk in here and stand and bump her or touch her or start doing this to her, I'm offending her because she has just told me, and I've watched her, that her boundary with me is like this and she really doesn't want me any closer than that unless we agree to hug. You know, she says to me, Pia, would you give me a hug? What she's doing right at the moment she does that, she's standing here, and, and, there's, and I'm right here with this 18 inches. When she says, Pia, would you give me a hug, she's already started scooting that thing in there. 
And in order to hug her, she will have had to pull that boundary way in and glue it to her skin. You follow me with that? So this thing moves in and moves out. If she was very angry with me and disturbed with me, she wouldn't get this close to me. She'd probably automatically stand a little back from me if she was angry with me. But if she wanted, if she was feeling close to me and wanted a hug, she asked for it, that means she's automatically pulled that in. Another issue here is let's just say she's mad and I want a hug from her or I want to hug her. If she's angry with me, and I'm not aware of it, but I'm standing here. She's got a boundary, and I say, you know, would you give me a hug? And she doesn't want to. she say, no, I don't want to. If I have one, she says, I'm angry with you. I don't really want to hug you. But if I have one, that's going to be okay if she says that to me. If she doesn't have one, she won't be able to say, no, she'll just let me hug her anyway and feel miserable. Because if she does, if she says, yes, hug me, but she really means no, then I get in here, she's going to feel offended. But whose, whose problem it is is Amy's, not mine, because I can assume she wants me to hug if she says yes, if she agrees to it. Okay? Thanks. Appreciate that. It's an energy experience, and if you're wondering about where your boundaries are, your external boundaries are, to start watching people by using your eyes and making eye contact to find out where your boundary is with them. And it can be different with the same person. For example, if I'm in a... If I'm, if Pat and I are getting along and I feel real good about that, he can stand real close to me and I'm absolutely comfortable. If, on the other hand, he's angry with me or I'm angry with him, we don't stand close together like that. We kind of stand back and far. If we're extremely angry, we may sit 18 feet away from each other in the living room in order to even talk. So with the same person, the thing can move out and move in. You know? Um... And with different people, it's different. Like some people feel safe to me, so I let them get kind of close. Other people don't feel safe for me for whatever reason. And I'm about kind of backing up from them to negotiate that distance. I don't let them stand in my face anymore. Some people feel real scary just by looking at them. They look real scary. You can bet if I see them over by that car and I don't want them any closer to me, I'll start walking so they can't get near me. That means I have that external boundary. It moves out and it moves in. The internal boundary is harder to take care of. Now let me show you a little exercise that will help you have one. This is one. This will, when you first start to do this, it's going to feel real weird and you won't be very successful with it. Hang in there anyway because when the first time it works for you, you will be amazed at how wonderful you feel. You need to... This is how you make your, your internal boundary work. Let's just say you're standing in your kitchen. Here you are right here and your husband is about ready to confront you or your wife. Let's say you're Anne and he's Harry. Now, he, he looks at you and says, you know, I need to tell you I'm angry with you. Right then you know a confrontation is going on. He's going to express his reality to you. And if you're going to be intimate and appropriate, you're going to set your internal boundaries so you can hear it. First thing you do is image that boundary system around you like a bell. What I tell people to do is to visualize a Smucker's jelly glass jar, make it real clean and sparkling, turn it upside down, dry it off, set it over your head, make it great big, and then set it down over your whole body. Just do that sometime. If you didn't do it right now, do it later so you can visualize that around you in an instant. Then I say... Remind yourself that you are to be listening to your husband, not defending yourself, but listening, tune your ears in. It used to be I'd either go into a shame attack 
or a rage attack. <clears throat> For example, when my husband in front of me, I couldn't hear when I was raging or in shame attack. So I used to, when I first started trying to do this, <clears throat> I'd hang on to my ear to remind myself that the only option right now is to listen, not defend myself. And so <clears throat> then what you want to do is set up that emotional boundary by saying to yourself, <clears throat> what Harry has to say to me is more about Harry than it is about me unless I've offended him. That'll set that emotional boundary that will put you in a position where you can hear Harry's reality because you know it's more about him anyway than you unless you offended him. But you want to note the impact of your behavior on him. That sets up the emotional thing. The next thing you want to do is start listening to what kind, what the nature of the confrontation is and use your intellectual boundary with this one. You will hear information that sounds true, not true, or questionable. You will do three different things with each kind of information. <clears throat> if you decided it's true and that's using your intellectual boundary, what you do with that is you let it in and embrace it and have your feelings about it. Embrace and have your feelings about it. It may feel crummy. It may make you feel real happy. It depends on what he's confronting you about. If when you listen you decide it's not true because you didn't do it and he's mistaken, watch it kind of pass at your boundary, bounce it off your boundary and land it on the floor, but acknowledge to Harry that you heard him. Like nod your head. If you decide it's questionable, what you do with that one is that you let it in, but let it in the back part of your boundary and set it on your shoulder where you can watch it. If you're not sure about some data about you, don't take it in, embrace it, and have a lot of feeling reality around it. What you want to do is just watch it. It'll move if you watch it eventually from questionable to not true or questionable to true. If it moves from questionable to not true, <clears throat> what you do is you throw it out. Remember I told you that your intellectual boundary will let things in, keep things out, and throw things out? That is the instant where you throw something out. Take it from your shoulder and toss it out. The first one lets it in. The not true keeps it out. In this instant, when it goes from uh, questionable to not true, it throws it out. If, and you watch it, it goes from questionable to true, which is the experience most people have in treatment when their family comes to confront them about themselves, then what you do with that one is you haul it around, embrace it, and have your feelings about it. This allows you to live in action for yourself rather than in constant codependent reaction to other people. If you're on this end of the experience, understand that you have the right to confront anybody with your reality. You need only face the consequences of doing that. And so as you confront with your reality, you need to remind yourself that your reality is more about you than the person you're confronting unless that person truly has offended you. You need to say that to yourself before you ever confront. This allows people to be intimate. Without this emotional boundary, I don't know how anybody can be intimate. Because you're going to either be blaming yourself or attacking the other person for whatever is going on when that's going on. There's no intimacy exchange. Intimacy is experienced on four levels. It's, it's experienced physically with your body, intellectually when you share your thinking reality, and emotionally when you share your feeling reality. That's the most powerful one, believe it or not. You cannot do that without a very good boundary system. It'll get screwed up. So recovery then, enable on your step one, assess what condition your boundary is, and then it requires you going into action and establishing your boundaries. 
And that's the end of this lecture. Okay, now I'm going to talk about what to do about this. I'm going to talk about it on two different levels. The first part of this will be about what you can do for yourself. And the second part is what therapy is, so you can get an idea of what the therapeutic experience is. But everybody can do this first part on their own. Now, just a note to, to be personal about this is that uh, I really have changed in seven years, not just because I've aged seven years, but I really have changed as a person. There is somebody in this room that knew me very well before anybody else, including my husband, and there's a fellow named George in this audience, and he knew me when I was at my sickest, and he can I'm sure he'd tell you that I act very differently now than I did then, and that I probably don't even seem like my old self. Wouldn't you say that? <laughs> George can verify that there is hope. <laughs> and I think you need to know that. Um, I've been talking a lot about this disease and it does feel overwhelming when somebody nails your fanny on it. But there is a lot of hope and there's a lot of um, experience now for codependency recovery and a lot of people that are in recovery that can demonstrate the strength of that to you. The first thing that you really need to do is consider attending some sort of 12-step meeting where you can gather around a bunch of people that are talking about the disease and talking about recovery. The meetings right now that are just very uh, important, I would say, for any recovering codependent, the first one is ACOA or ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics. Now, the people that are supposed to attend that meeting are people that have had alcoholic parents, but anybody from a dysfunctional family system can go to those meetings and get a lot of help because it actually doesn't matter whether the dysfunction is caused by a drinking parent or a drug-taking parent or a sex-addicted parent or a crazy parent or an abusive, raging parent. The effects generally are absolutely the same. So ACA meetings for anybody from a dysfunctional family system are really important. I want to say something here to you also. Y'all, in that very first lecture I gave, remember that last column on the far right talked about recovery and what it looks like? Please remember, when you're going to ACA meetings to start talking about what recovery looks like instead of mashing around in the disease, it doesn't feel good to only talk about the disease at those meetings. I think it's most important as you start experiencing glimpses of recovery that you talk about that quite vigorously in those meetings. Another meeting that's real good for a codependent who has been sexually abused as a child are COSA meetings. They're for co-sex addicts. These are people that have been sexually abused as children and then have issues uh, in, when they get have difficulty being in sexual relationships with other people. They're constantly searching for love and acceptance, uh, usually getting into acting out sexually in order to get this love and get into addicted relationships with people that aren't really very good for them or who don't treat them very well. Uh, another, it, it is an issue of codependency to be a co-sex addict. It's just a spin-off, and people that do this are people who have been sexually abused, either incested or molested. Another meeting that will fit the COSA issue that, are, that is now starting up in the valley is that meeting for women called Women Who Love Too Much. And that book, Women Who Love Too Much, is a very good book to read. It talks about co-sex addiction. There's also another book out by Patrick Carnes called Sex Addiction. 
this talks about co-sex addiction in there. So either one of those books is very good for a person who is a co-sex addict. It'll talk about that. That's about getting into addicted love relationships where you're powerless and where you're being abused and offended and you stay in them anyway. Another very good meeting for a codependent is Incest Survivors Anonymous. That's new in the Valley. Actually, we uh, got it from California. Um, there are several in the Valley. If you want to know where they are, you can call me um, or call Mo, and she can get you in touch with me about how to find out where the incest survivors are. Incest survivors are for people who have suffered being incested as a child or who have been molested as a child and they have issues around that. Um, one thing about Incest Survivors Anonymous, if you were incested or molested but have become a sex offender in, in terms of being an incest perpetrator or you're into molesting children, you're not welcome at that meeting. I would not attempt to go. They do not want you in there. They only want uh, the people that have not become offenders. So that is, there is a barrier right there. I just wanted to let you know that. I have incest survivor starter packets. If you call me and you because you want to start one somewhere in the valley, I'll be glad to send one to you. Um, the the main ones are actually over in the West End because that's where we hold our aftercare from where I work and that most of the people um, have started them over in that area. But if you want to start a mountain Scottsdale and get you know you can get in touch with Mo or me, and uh, we'll be glad to um, help you start. Start something like that. Another meeting for a codependent, of course, is Al-Anon. Al-Anon is a good meeting that addresses adult codependency issues. It's more about your current relationship with someone, usually with an addict of some kind, but still it does address some issues of codependency. It's a very good meeting. And I, the basic one, though, that I would suggest all of you begin to attend if you are codependent are these adult children of alcoholics. The second thing that will really help you is to do a written step one as you can follow the guideline I gave you or if you've seen some other step, get started writing about your disease. That's the purpose of step one, to see that disease in action. And until you see it, you're not going to be able to do a thing about it. One of the things I know, by the way, about codependence is that we are very hard to treat. Very, very hard to treat. Um, my experience with myself was that I resisted doing everything, everything I resisted. It wasn't until I got into enough pain that I was willing to do anything. But also as a counselor, I have met great resistance with the patients I've worked with. I mean tremendous. And I have to repeat myself and I have to confront and confront and confront and confront and confront. One of the hallmarks of a codependency counselor needs to be that you are very, very patient, kind and understanding. Because you're going to have to repeat yourself a lot. Because you won't be able to hear me. I'll have to say it again and again and again and again. Eventually you'll get it. But it takes a long time. But you will resist. And that's why in the groups I run and the people I know, I have a motto for us. It's called, hug your demons or they'll bite you in the ass. <laughs> you must start embracing these issues and doing something about it. If you expect anybody else to do it for you, you will stay stuck, lost, and sick. There's absolutely nobody that can do this stuff for you. No one. Who needed to have done it for you were your parents. They needed to have treated you functionally and respectfully. Now you got to learn how to do that for you. And nobody can do that for you. Nobody's ever meant to do it for you. The, th the third thing you can do is get yourself a codependency sponsor. 
I would suggest that you choose someone who, if you can, that has some recovery and is demonstrating that. But what you really need is a sponsor who can parent you, who can nurture, who's honest and confrontive, who's willing to tell you how you look, but also be able to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until you get it. You need a patient, nurturing, parenting type person. I would suggest that you get a member of the same sex. Don't ever try to do this with a member of the opposite sex. You might wind up 13-stepping each other, and that's not appropriate. The fourth thing you can do on your own is to attack each symptom I talked about. The low self-esteem, the owning your reality, the needs and wants, the operating in the extremes and the boundaries. You need to begin to attack and confront within yourself each symptom. You obviously can't do that. You're not going to know what to do or what the problem is unless you get going on that written step one. So that comes first. Then do this. And do it systematically. Concentrate. Don't try to do it all at once. You'll go nuts. What I would say if you had to pick some here, start working on the self-esteem and the boundaries. Then you can flop into owning your own reality. Then you can address the needs and wants. And the last one, which is the hardest one, is operating in the extremes and that's where I am right now. I still flap out there in the wild blue yonder. But it's the last one I've really been able to deal with. So if you want some guidelines like that, I'll tell you that. What to do about the first one, low self-esteem? Well, obviously on the other end of this is being arrogant and grandiose. Now if you're out being arrogant and grandiose, you have to start an understanding that what you're doing is very dysfunctional and inappropriate. If you experience the loss of it, the lack of esteem, the first thing you have to do is make a de decision that you must not stand one down from everybody else, just like the arrogant one has to make a decision that they can't be one above everybody else. You have to start equalizing here, and you do that by making a decision that as you are, you are enough, that you are filled, don't shake your head, Bill, that you're filled, <laughs> that you're precious and wonderful. I always know I have a codependent in my midst. It's almost diagnostic to sit and do this to someone. I say, I want you to tell me you're a wonderful, precious person. Now, a codependent in my office will go into a shame attack and be rendered speechless and then turn beet red and tell me, no, they can't do that. Make a decision that you are that way. Second thing you can do is do affirmation work, but it's a very, very specific kind of work. It's about uh, figuring out all the shame words that you use to keep yourself feeling one down that would follow any I am statement. So you got to do an inventory of all the I am statements you give that are, that are negative, like I am a lout, I am stupid, I am less than, I am worthless, I am inadequate, I am empty, I am awful, I am a slut, I am a jerk, you know, all that. Inventory all those nouns and adjectives that are negative in nature that would follow an I am statement since that leads you back to the shame issue. When you figure that all out, then make another set of, of I am statements that, that dispute each negative noun and adjective. So if you're over here saying I'm bad, you're over here saying I'm good. If you're over here saying I'm inadequate, you're over here saying I'm adequate. If you're over here saying I'm, a, I'm worthless, you're over here saying I'm a precious person. If you're over here saying I'm stupid, you're over here saying I'm smart. Then take that list of positive statements and put them on a tape. Just list them. A blank, take a blank tape, and you can start it out saying, I am Pia Melody, and the following is a list of affirmations I am using to dispute the shame core messages. 
And then you just say him, I'm a precious person. I am adequate. I am wonderful. And when you get all done with that, and you play it to yourself twice a day, in the morning when you get up and at night when you go to bed, and read your 24-hour book, for those of you who use one, before you, you read your affirmation tape. There's a real good 24-hour book for Cody Pennants. It's called Affirmations for Adult Children of Alcoholics. It's a little red book that's published by Health Communications out of Pompano Beach, Florida. It's an excellent 24-hour book for codependents. Get it. The next thing that will help your sense of esteem is to start making your boundaries work. Making boundaries work will ca cause you to start, uh, you know, standing in a position where you're saying, I am worth defending. The second thing has to do with owning your own reality. That is real simple. But you have to have done your step to know where you're not owning it. If you're at B, make it up. If you're at B and don't know what your reality is and somebody challenges you and asks you what it is, you make it up. If they say, what are you feeling? And you don't know, make it up. What happens when you make it up is it will cause what it is to eventually surface, either an hour later, a minute later, a day later, a week later, or something. If when it does surface, it differs from what you said, go back to that person and tell them what it really was. There's a time gap there. That's what it's about. Because at some point you will feel it or think it or know what you did or didn't do, or know what you look like. Then you go back and correct it. It'll start closing, when you do that, it'll start closing that time gap so that you'll have an awareness of who you really are as it is happening. If you're at I know and won't tell, you start telling, but be sure you're telling people that are safe. You don't want to tell unsafe people what your reality is. Don't be foolish. You don't walk up to an offender and tell them you're sexually attracted to them when you know they're going to turn around and offend you. You don't, you don't hang out your reality with people that are offenders and abusive or who are inappropriate to tell that to. So don't blab everything to everybody. Don't go out to that extreme. In terms of your needs and wants, what you have to do on, on your needs is make up that inventory of what your needs are and then on a daily basis, this takes work, folks, on a daily basis inventory, if you're, uh, if you're at B and not knowing what the needs are, inventory your awareness that day of your own neediness and what just simply your awareness but if you're at A you know what your needs are then you inventory whether you took care of them or not so if you work on B you'll eventually move to A when you're at A you start taking care of your needs and confronting yourself so if you're aware that you've got to do something that that you've got a cavity you got a need there to take care of then instead of waiting till you have to have a root canal you know waiting four months so you have to call the doctor up at Sunday night because you got an abscess going. But you do it immediately. You make an appointment with a dentist immediately to get that tooth fixed. Now, you force yourself to do it. In terms of the wanting, if you are completely wantless and you're at B and don't know what you want, you have to start making up what you think you might want when somebody asks you or when you need to do that. If you are at wanting but not getting it, if you can afford it, you start forcing yourself to get it. If you can afford it, though. Not to go out into the extreme and get every single thing that ever occurs to you so you can bankrupt yourself. Don't fling yourself way out to that extreme. You stay within moderate reason. If you're wanting everything and not noticing your needs, you need to pull back and moderately approach what you want and discipline yourself. And then start putting your needs first until you get that balance straightened out. In terms of operating in the extremes, I'd like to home, I'd like my husband. If my husband would come up and talk about that, you'd probably get more out of it because this is one area I'm still blurred. But what that, and he's not there, so I'll do it myself. What that is about is flinging yourself out into one extreme or the other as you re 
as you are living. And I've talked about this a little bit before, but I'll do it again. Understand that moderation is your goal. And when you've done your step one and you have some idea of how you operate here, operate there, uh, start catching yourself when you're doing or wanting to do it. Now what you do is if you find yourself over here, visualize the very opposite. You're going to want to move over here to correct it, but don't. Instead, visualize yourself walking towards the center and making a decision to do something moderate. Understanding at all times and for a very long time, actually, you'll, always, you'll feel as though you haven't responded enough. Know that's normal. Continue doing that. Eventually, you'll start feeling very uncomfortable about flinging yourself out here. Then you know you've moved, you're starting to move into recovery. In terms of boundaries, I've already explained that to you. Uh, that's about making your external uh, boundary and your internal boundary working by those exercises. I showed you one for the external with Amy, and I demonstrated the internal with that little let it in, keep it out, and throw it out imagery work. But of course, you have, before you can do that, you have to evaluate the condition of each part of your boundary system. So you have to do that written step first. In order, so if you've written out the step and you know the condition, then you need to start uh, addressing each issue. Let me show you something too. I don't think I said this before in terms of your boundaries, but it isn't. It is very common for people to bounce between walls and nothing, and some people think that they bounce between a damaged one and nothing. But they bounce here and here. Um, so if some of you, when you assess, find yourself wanting to do that, go ahead and do that. Write down whatever you think it is. If I haven't explained something but you think it's different than what I said, then write that down. It really doesn't matter. Own your own reality about it. But anyway, you have to start correcting these conditions. And you do it by memorizing those statements I gave you and start as you get into negotiating distance and touch or negotiating that emotional intellectual boundary that you use it you force yourself to use it believe me when you start that up when you crank up to do that you will have great difficulty understand that that is the case but if you keep working at it oh one day you'll make it work and it'll be like moving from night to day but you're going to have to approach it probably many times before it works for you you keep doing it anyway I get, because I travel around the country and do a lot of work out there, I get a lot of phone calls. Ask my secretary. And I have people, hey, I'm trying, can't do it. I say, okay, I know I hear you, but do it anyway. I can't. It's not that you can, it's that you won't. You do it. You call me tomorrow after you've done that. I don't want to hear that you didn't do it. You go ahead and do it anyway. have to. And remember, the external boundary is about distance and touching. And the internal boundary is about letting things in, keeping things out, and throwing things out. And, and you are absolutely the only people that can do that kind of thing for yourself. Nobody can do it, not even me. I can tell you how to do it. I can support you in doing it, but I can't make you do it. You're the only one that can do that. Now, let's talk about therapy. 